Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We are in a series called Work and Rest, where we are exploring these life-giving rhythms God has designed for us. Thanks for joining us. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Brian. It's good to gather with you. I was standing down there. I, I love seeing the middle school kids help leading us in worship. I love having uh, today, he's usually downstairs, but my seven-year-old was in here and doing the motions from VBS. I love seeing that. I, I was just reminded while, while we were singing, and this is, this is not part of the message, but I was just reminded the importance and significance of why we gather, right? We scatter during the week. And then we come together and we gather intergenerationally, kids downstairs and in the room, middle school, high school adults, to make much of the name of Jesus, to encourage one another. And something significant happens when we are singing together. And it fills this room and the Holy Spirit is moving and he's here and he's with us. And when we gather, something significant happens. We open up God's word to hear what he has to say to us. And so I'm grateful you've made time to be here today. I'm grateful to be reminded God's kingdom is global. It's not just Springfield, Illinois. It's in Bangkok, Thailand. And I see Scott and Cindy Nelson sitting out here from the Philippines. If you want to welcome them here today, so good to have you. Yeah. Man, it is a global church and a global kingdom. And when we come together, we're reminded of that. We get out of our little silos and our houses and we're reminded of how big God's kingdom is. So, hey, we're in a series this summer called Work and Rest. And if you're following on your notes, we're exploring these two life-giving rhythms of work and rest that God has designed for us. We're exploring these rhythms. And last week, Chuck introduced us to the spiritual practice of Sabbath. And we looked at Genesis 1 and 2 and how God built in a rhythm of work and rest as he created the world. God wanted his people to live into this rhythm so much that he included it as the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments that he gave to his people. And as a reminder, just so we all know what we're talking about when we say the word Sabbath, it's a Hebrew word from the verb Shabbat, which is, means to cease. It means to cease, if you're following in your notes. And today what we're going to do is continue talking about the Sabbath. And we're actually going to do this next week as well, because I want to provide a biblical theology for Sabbath, because I, I think this will add another layer of depth to the meaning and motivation for practicing this. And to do that, to start this biblical theology, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, chapter 16. Right at the beginning of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have black Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. Exodus chapter 16 can be found on page 57 of those Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, please take that home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's word. So please take that home as our gift. Exodus 16. In Genesis, there's actually two words that are used to communicate that God rested from his work. One of those words is sabbat. We just said that. It's sabbat, which means to cease. They're verbs. But if you're following in your notes, the first use of the word Sabbath in the Bible is found in Exodus 16.23. It's the first use of the word. It's the first time this word is used to instruct people in imitating God's work and rest pattern. And there's this 
principle that's sometimes used when reading the Bible. It's called the principle of first usage. And what that is, is when we want to understand a word or an idea a little bit better, you go to the place where that word is first used in the Bible because it can often give us an original meaning and an intent and a deeper understanding and a context. So we're going to look today at the first usage of the word Sabbath in the Bible in Exodus 16. The book of Exodus is all about the departure of God's people from slavery in Egypt, right? The the word Exodus actually means departure. And by the end of the book of Genesis, just to bring us up to speed where we are in God's story, at at the end of the book of Genesis and beginning in Exodus, God's people have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, backbreaking, seven days a week, work with no rest, all in an effort to build up and expand the Egyptian empire. And after 400 years, God miraculously saves his people from slavery, leads them out of Egypt across the Red Sea. You may have heard that story before. And he leads them to freedom. And then in Exodus chapter 16, verses one to three, this is so interesting. We're one month removed from Egypt. Exodus 16 is one month removed and the people are grumbling about how good they had it back in slavery. It took one month. And in response to this grumbling about having no food, in Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, you can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen, it says, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Now, I don't know what you would have done if you were God. I'm not sure I would have been so gracious to these people who were grumbling one month out of slavery about how good it was back in Egypt. But God, in his goodness and grace, is going to send bread for them to eat. And before this, God sends water for them to drink. Right, we can read the Old Testament and miss the grace. We just say it's law and it's just an angry God. But his grace is clearly shown in this scripture. God provides for his people even when they don't deserve it. And it's a reminder that he provides for us even when we don't deserve it. His character never changes. And I want us to notice this word In verse four, if you're following in your Bibles, verse four says, in this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. So God's people are to go out and gather enough food for just one day, one day at a time. And in doing so, God is testing them. Now, when we hear the word test, we think of school, We think of passing and we think of failing. We get a little bit anxious. And what we need to understand is that God is not a professor looking to fail his people or even putting them in a situation where he can get them. I'm testing you and you're going to fail and I'm going to get you. That's not the character of our God either. The desert tests are not trials for the Israelites to prove they are worthy to be accepted by God. If you're following in your notes, God tests people for their benefit, not his. It's for their benefit. It's for our benefit because it's through passing and failing tests that God's people learn the nature of obedience. 
It's interesting that one of the definitions for the Old Testament word test, you may want to write this on your notes, uh, the, the Old Testament word is anasenu, it actually means train. It means train. Testing is training. I appreciate what Mark Sayers, a pastor in Australia, we talk about the global church, says about testing. This quote is on the screen. He says, we don't usually associate testing with spiritual growth. For most people, it brings up memories of school, exams, and papers. The testing we encounter in the biblical imagination is different. It is more akin to an intense process of spiritual growth in which God both seeks and forms people after his own heart, people who want what he wants, who wish to be shaped by him and set apart for his purposes. The testing in scripture is more akin to how a personal trainer at a gym may take a new client through an initial fitness test to assess the starting point of where they are physically and where they need to improve. In spiritual testing, our actual spiritual state is revealed in all of its inadequacy and its failings. This, however, is part of a broader strategy of spiritual growth. Do you see testing that way? I know, I struggle with that, right? Have you experienced this though? Have you experienced a time when your faith was stretched? It wasn't pleasant. You may have even hated it at the time. You asked, why God? Why is this happening? But on the other side of the testing, your faith was different and your trust was strengthened. Just a week ago, one of our boys went away to their first five-night overnight camp, and I was nervous, and I was anxious. I was telling the Lord about this, and I was thinking about this message at the time, and I clearly know God was saying to me, Brian, this is a test that I want to train you to be less anxious and less nervous and release your kids. Like, I knew it. He was saying it to me. And maybe you've experienced something similar, right? Like a kid going off to college, going off to kindergarten for the first time, driving away on their first solo drive. I wish I could tell you I passed that test with flying colors. But what it revealed, what the testing and training revealed is that I have a lot more training to do. And that I have a lot of anxiety and a lot of worry to trust God with, especially when it comes to my kids. And so testing is training. And if you're following in your notes, God is testing his people so they learn to trust him daily. It's a daily trust. God is teaching them daily. This is one of the main ways God is growing the Israelites' faith and one of the main ways he grows our faith. And just so we all know, if you're following along in the Bible, when we see the word trust, it is a bold confident, sure security in someone or something. It is confidence. Take it to the bank. Trust is not exactly the same thing as faith. I want to distinguish those. Faith is a gift from God. God gives us the gift of faith. Trusting is what we do because of the faith we've been given. I like how one person put this. If you're following your notes, trust is putting faith into practice. Trust is putting faith into practice. It, it means we believe in the character and the promises of God in all circumstances, especially when the evidence seems to be to the contrary. And that is hard. It's hard. 
And it's fascinating, and we'll see this in just a minute as we move forward in our story. If you're following in your notes, the test God gives his people in the story that we're looking at today to increase their trust, the test God gives them is practicing Sabbath. That's their test. So moving on in our story, God is still speaking to Moses, and in Exodus 16, verses 6 to 7, you can follow in your Bibles, it says, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. So remember here, this test is for the people's benefit, not God's benefit. God wants his people to know and remember it was him who brought them out of Egypt and slavery. And if he brought them out of that situation, then he has a plan for them. And he wants them to remember this. It's not just a day of ceasing, it's a day of remembering And then we get to chapter 16, verse 16, and we see Moses instructing the people, right? What we had seen earlier in the chapter is God's instructing Moses, and now Moses is passing on God's word to the people. So this is Moses speaking in verse 16. It says, this is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Now, if you're like me, you're wondering what an omer is. It's about nine cups. It's about nine cups of bread. And what God's showing the people is that every single day he provides. Every day. God is building into their lives this rhythm of dependence that he provides what they need. Maybe not what they want, Right? They might have wanted filet mignon. He gives them wafers of bread and quail. That's what they need. And God's teaching them that their daily bread is a gift from him. He wants them to depend on him and trust him. And this is the posture he wants us to take as well. And then continuing in verses 19 to 20, we get some more instruction and commentary on how the instruction was followed. Verse 19 says, then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it till morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and it began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. And what I love about the Bible, one of the things I love about the Bible, it just displays the human condition. It doesn't doesn't make people look better than they are. If a little is good, more must be better, right? God's word is pretty good, but I'll just add a little bit of my own wisdom and make it better, right? And before we think less of the Israelites, I'm not sure I would have done any different here, right? I mean, this is, I just have this mindset. If you tell me it's gonna go bad by the morning, my first thought is, let's just see if it goes bad by the morning. Let's just see. God graciously provides and the people try to take advantage of it. This is revealing that the people trusted God to some extent. They had some trust, but they didn't trust him fully. Can we resonate with this? Can we resonate with this? This is our condition as well. So what we've seen so far is that every day, every day there was just enough for that day. And then if we jump back to verse five, if you look at verse five in your Bibles, we find there are different instructions for the sixth day. Verse five reads, on the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on other days. 
And then we jump to verses 21 and 22, which continues the instructions for the sixth day. It says, each morning they gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. And then would you read this with me in the gray box on your notes? Moses said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. And then he finishes by saying, so bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until the morning. So this is the first occurrence of the word Sabbath in the Bible, where people are instructed to keep a holy day. And you see it's called Holy Sabbath. If you're following in your notes, holy is a word which means set apart. We were singing that this morning, right? You are holy, Lord. You are set apart from us. The Lord commanded that his people take a holy Sabbath to the Lord, an entire day of ceasing that is to be holy, set aside, and dedicated to the Lord. And this word holy is important for another, day, another reason as well. No other culture in the ancient world celebrated a day of weekly rest. No other society in ancient times took a day off because survival was often day to day. But God commanded his people to take a Sabbath because he wanted to remind them that he would provide for them. And as they trusted him, they would be set apart people that didn't live at the breakneck speed of the society and the culture around them. If you're following in your notes, Sabbath is a way to be set apart from the culture around us. The same is true for us as it was for the Israelites. And I wonder if we live this out if we trusted God and rested that he would provide, that others would notice because it's so against the flow of our culture. It is a way for us to be set apart. And then we finish our story this morning. If we go back to see how the Israelites fared in practicing the Sabbath, the beginning in verse 24, can follow along in your Bibles. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. Just one, one interesting thing to pick up on here that came to my mind during the week as I studied, God is still practicing the Sabbath in this story. He is still modeling his rhythm of creation. Create the world in six days and rest on the seventh. Provide food for six days, rest on the seventh. God is still modeling this rhythm and he is training his people to imitate him. And some of the people still didn't get it and they still disobeyed and God rebukes them in verse 28. How long will you not listen? I wonder how often God looks at me and says, how long will you not listen? Just do what I'm asking you to do. 
And God is bringing his people. I, I've, God is bringing his people in this story into something new, right? A new and better way of life. Yet we still see people disobeying him. And it's a pattern we still see today, even in our own lives. And in verses 29 and 30, Moses is pleading with the people, you can trust God. And the section ends with the inclusion of so the people rested on the seventh day, leading us to believe it was practiced by the entire faith community. Maybe not perfectly, but they at least attempted to practice this. Now, one of my professors in seminary would ask this question, what would we be missing if this wasn't in the Bible? What would we be missing? And I believe God strategically uses this story in the desert to introduce us to Sabbath because God is bringing the Israelites and us face to face with the question, whom do you trust? Whom do you trust? God was bringing his people out of slavery, out of something old and into something new. And he knew they would need to trust him to accomplish his purposes for them. And he's still doing that today. He's bringing us out of something old into something new. And he's asking, will you trust me? Will you trust me? And that's why if you're following in your notes, Sabbath confronts us with the question, whom do I trust? Whom do I trust? So if that's the question in front of us, for our final few minutes together, I want to address four lessons that Sabbath teaches us about trusting God rather than trusting in ourselves. And I want to add this. The Lord impressed this on me when I was out walking this week. These lessons are primarily learned when we slow down and rest. They are difficult and maybe even impossible to learn. The the lessons we're going to talk about, impossible to learn if we never slow down. If we just keep running at breakneck speed and striving after things, we will not learn these lessons. So the first lesson, Sabbath teaches us about trust. Number one, if you're following your notes, God is in control. God is in control, right? The belief that we sustain the world and God doesn't, is at the heart of our unrest, right? Maybe one of the reasons we resist Sabbath is that when we rest, we realize we're not necessary. Even the most important of us can disappear and the world will go on. Did you know, I read a fact this week, brand new fact. Did you know that the sun will rise tomorrow without your help? True fact, true fact. Mark Buchanan wrote a book called The Rest of God. It's at our resource center. And he says in that book, he writes this, unless we trust the sovereignty of God, we won't dare risk the Sabbath. There is no rest for those who don't believe that. If God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called to his purposes, you can relax. If he doesn't, start worrying. You can take a day off and the world will keep spinning. You can not check your email or your social media feed and your company will still exist the next day. And you will not have missed out on what someone else had for dinner. You may actually feel better about yourself since you spent a day not comparing your life to the highlights of what others post, and you might find yourself less anxious because you haven't spent time doom-scrolling and reading about all the brokenness in the world. 
Sabbath, pausing for one day, brings us face to face with the question, whom do I trust? And it is good to be reminded that all of our hope, all of our trust, and all of our dependence is on God and that he is in control and Sabbath allows us to slow down and remember that. A second lesson we learn from Sabbath, if you're following your notes, God is the provider for our lives. He is the provider, right? God has set up the world. God has set up the world in such a way that most of the provision we experience in our life comes from the work we do, right? I'm going to say that again. God has set up the world in such a way that most of the provision we experience in life comes from the work we do. And because of that, we can easily begin to assume that we're the ones who bear responsibility for providing everything. And we certainly have a role to play in providing, right? I mean, that was the first part of this series when we talked about work and doing our work with excellence and to the glory of God. But we need to intentionally remember that God is the provider of everything. All that we have, no matter how successful we are, has graciously been given to us by God. Everything is on loan from him and we are stewards of it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Chick-fil-A was founded by Truett Cathy in 1946. Their vision statement reads this way. You can see it on the screen. To glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us. And one way they do that since their founding is by being closed on Sundays. Right? Kathy wanted his employees to have a day of rest and worship with their family if they chose to. And as far as the business, he said they were trusting God to provide what they needed. As an aside, how many times have you been on a road trip and it's Sunday and it's lunchtime and you're like, oh, let's just go to Chick-fil-A and you don't even finish before you remember, dang it, they're closed on Sunday. In an article based on 2018 statistics, I read that if open on Sundays, Chick-fil-A could make an estimated 1.2 billion more in profit. And I don't know this for sure. I'm completely guessing at this. I have to imagine they've been tempted to change their business strategy when you see a number like 1.2 billion. But they believe God will provide what they need and they are willing to rest and trust God. Sabbath made them come face to face and it makes us come face to face with the question, whom do I trust? Ceasing teaches us a third lesson. If you're following in your notes, we can't get it all done. We can't get it all done. Justin Whitmull Early is the author of a book called The Common Rule. You can see a picture of that. That is at our resource center as well. Some of you remember he was here in March for a faith and culture forum that we held. He writes this in in his book, The Common Rule. Practicing Sabbath is supposed to make us feel like we can't get it all done because that's the way reality is. We can't do it all. When we stop working, we admit the world is not dependent on me. I know at times it will feel like the planets will fall out of orbit if we don't check our email or know what's going on in other people's lives on social media. And amazingly, that doesn't happen. The world is just fine while we rest. And I love how John Mark Comer, a pastor in Portland, Oregon, is brutally honest in talking about the Sabbath. He says, one of the more painful realities of Sabbath keeping is that some of our work will remain incomplete. We often tell ourselves, when I finish everything, then I'll rest. But when does it end? There's always more work to be done. 
And I love the paradigm that Chuck provided last week. What if instead of resting when the work is done, which may never come, what if we work out of a place of rest, right? We work from an intentional place of rest where we've slowed down and we've trusted that God is in control and that God will provide And I know as I say that, some of you are like pulling out your checklist to put the checks in the boxes. And this is really hard. It's hard for me. I'm a doer. I like to accomplish things. I like to see the end product. It's hard for me to put something down and walk away. But I wonder if God wants to test you by seeing if you'll put it down when it's not finished and then pick it up again later. I just wonder if he wants to train us in that. Maybe God wants to train you to believe that you can't get it all done and it's okay that you can't get it all done because your identity is more than what you can produce. Your identity is in Christ alone. We can't get it all done and that's a good thing. And finally, the fourth lesson we learn from ceasing. If you're following in your notes, practicing Sabbath points us to Jesus. It points us to Jesus. We read all of scripture with an eye toward Jesus because all of scripture points to Jesus. And in the gospel of John chapter six, Jesus is talking to his disciples about the manna in the wilderness. He's talking to them about the story that we are studying today. And we're told that Jesus says this in verse 35. You can see it on the screen. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And then if we go down to John chapter six, verse 49 to 51, same conversation. Jesus says, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. The man in the wilderness was a type. It was a type. It's something from the Old Testament that points to salvation in Jesus. The manna and the Sabbath taught Israel to depend on God for all their physical needs but only for a little while, right? It was temporary. Only while they were in the desert, at some point they all died. Sabbath is a way of proclaiming our trust in Jesus. When we practice Sabbath, we remember that Jesus has met our every need by living a sinless life, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And through faith in Christ, we can be reconciled to God and made right again. We can be made right with God and that is our greatest need in this world. And Jesus has provided for that. Ceasing for one 24-hour period helps us remember and focus on Jesus in the midst of our hectic culture. Sabbath points us to Jesus. So the question that I want to leave us with today is the question that Sabbath confronts us with. If you're following in your notes, whom do I trust? Whom do I trust? And so I want to invite you to put your notes away. We always want to give you a a moment to respond to God's word and what the Holy Spirit may be saying to you. I believe God talks to us so much more than we even recognize. 
And so in this moment, we, we want to practice this resting. What is an area of your life where it's difficult to trust God? And where, where, where are we maybe trusting a little bit, but we're supplementing with our own courage, our own anxiety, because it makes it feel like we're in control? Where, where is it in your life that you need to trust God fully? And be honest with him. Don't judge or shame yourself, but name where you struggle to trust him and ask him to increase your faith, increase your trust. We want to give you just a moment to ask the Lord what he's saying to you about that. And listen, take this time to talk to the Lord. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.